Amen. That's our desire to see the Lord glorified, not only through the singing, uh, but also through the scriptures. So please turn with me in your Bibles to what has to be the least known book of all the Bible, Haggai. I know you're going to need help uh, finding that. Uh, it's 791, page 791 on the blue Bible in the seat back. If you're trying to find it in your own Bible, you can just turn to the book of Matthew and then just turn back three books and you'll be able to get there. But with that uh, being said about the obscurity of, of Haggai, I, I need to apologize to you. I kind of implied last week that, um, yeah, th- this was going to be a, a pretty dry study, so we needed to do something else. And anyway, you were very accommodating with me, knowing that I had some pastoral things that I wanted to address. Uh, but I, I've reflected further upon my statement, and I shouldn't have said or even acted like Haggai wouldn't be exciting. It is indeed God's Word, and I've been corrected immensely this week in study, insofar as this is the second shortest book in all of the Old Testament, and I've probably spent more time and energy on such a small passage with great fruit. Like, I have struggled to figure out how do I get this down into our normal time slot uh, as opposed to doing a three-hour discourse on the book of Haggai. It is way more exciting than I first gave it credit for. So I hope and trust that you will benefit as much as I have. To orient us to the entire book, I think we do well just to read a couple verses to begin. Look at chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. This sums it up pretty well. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. In 2013, a quaint couple from Waco, Texas, would launch a TV show on, at that time, a rather obscure TV network that would take the nation by storm. The women in the room already know where I'm going. The couple was none other than Chip and Joanna Gaines. Uh, the show was Fixer Upper. It would run for four or five seasons uh, and would invade not only the television sets of many around the country, but also uh, the real estate market itself. Uh, Zillow would eventually report that uh, people who were modeling their homes in this um, barn chic style (laughs) uh, would get 30% greater return uh, on their investment. I mean, in fact, it It just invaded Pinterest boards and and people's own home remodeling projects. I mean, to the degree that Waco, Texas, because this is where the show took place, actually became a tourist destination on the map. I mean, prior to 2013, the only thing I knew that happened in Waco, Texas, was the whole Branch Davidian mess. And now, people, when they think of Waco, Texas, don't think of that anymore. They think of Chip and Joanna Gaines. They've got their own decor line at Target, and now they have their own TV network called the Magnolia Network, on which they've relaunched their show. 
What's been interesting, though, is how this particular American phenomenon in particular has fueled many a person's desire to fix the broken and to improve the blasé. I mean, I just want you to think right now, is there anything that is currently on your written or mental to-do list in which you're thinking, there's something at the house I need to fix? That's actually a bad question. I should ask it this way. Is there anybody who doesn't have anything like that? (laughs) Even if you say, I don't own a house, I just rent a room, or I am a kid and I stay in a room. Even kids think about what they want to do in their room how they want to make it better, how they want to improve. As a homeowner, there's always that leaky faucet, that that crooked cabinet, uh, that broken light or piece of whatever. (laughs) I think of my house the last year and all the random projects that have been tackled. There is something every week, and I can never overcome it. But it's the way that we live. We want to make it better. It's where we reside. Here's a question for you. What does our penchant for home improvement say about us? I mean, isn't it weird that all of us in the room can relate on this issue? What does it say about us? Better question. What should it say about God? Maybe you've never considered the relationship between the two, but believe it or not, Haggai answers such questions. See, Haggai is a book that is steeped in a dark and difficult history of reconstruction and remodeling. In particular, what's going on here is the reconstruction of the temple. This was the place in the period of the Old Covenant in which God physically was going to manifest his presence to the world. Now, for those of you who are new to the Christian faith or haven't thought through this that much, you need to understand it's different than a church building. Church building is just a building. We did a wedding here yesterday, and today we happen to be meeting here to worship the Lord. But the church today is the people gathered in a place. It's not necessarily a building. But in the Old Testament, though, God intended for his glory to be displayed in a real temporal spatial place. That is time, that is location. He wanted his glory to be known. So that started in the Garden of Eden, and then sin ruined that. And so God had constructed a new plan uh, almost a, a few hundred years later in which, okay, there would be a place in which his name would be known, and it would be called the Tabernacle. But it seemed uh, inappropriate that his glory would be made known in a tent. And so, eventually, God said, okay, I will allow you to convey my glory through a building, the the temple. And so, God, through David, ultimately, who made the plans, and then Solomon would finish the job, would build this place that would manifest his glory to the world. And it did. And and, and it was beautiful. And, And in some accounts, it's considered to be one of the ancient wonders of the world. And yet, it would be raised. It would be destroyed. 
approximately 100 years before the book of Haggai was ever written, God judged his people. He said, you will not manifest my glory on account of your sin and your rebellion. And because of that, I will not only exile you, but I will destroy this unique place that would uniquely represent me. You do not have the unique liberty and capacity to represent me anymore. But he promised them that one day he would rebuild it. He would give them another chance. And so God had exiled the people. There they are, uh, about 80 years, if you will, in Babylonian captivity. Uh, The temple is kind of like burnt to the ground, if you will. It's been pillaged by these foreign nations. And God eventually allows a group of people to come back. And one of the first things that they were supposed to do was rebuild that temple because it was their very reason of existence to display the glory of God. And this is the way that he decided to do it. But here's what happened. Their reconstruction project was fraught with difficulty. How many of you have ever done a renovation of some type? Yeah. (laughs) The rest of you just aren't admitting it. It it is is a pain, and it is frustrating in its own right. But not only did they have the typical pains of reconstruction, they had active opposition. The, The Samaritans at the time were actually opposed to them rebuilding this temple. And so they put a halt to the project. And so it's been probably somewhere between 16 to 18 years, and God's temple is still just sitting there in ruins, and Haggai comes on the scene and says, no, we have to finish the job. And what's interesting about the book of Haggai in particular is that it's the most specific calendar event of all the prophecies in the Minor Prophets. You're going to have a span of about four months That'll be dated down to the exact day. Now, I'm not going to go with you on the differences between the ancient Near Eastern calendar and the modern Gregorian calendar, but for simplicity's sake, you're going to notice four movements here. One will be in August of 520 BC. The other will be in September. Then the next one will be in, um, let's see, we have August, September, October, and then the last one is in December. And you're going to see, and as Haggai speaks up in each of these particular moments, he is trying to prod them back into building the temple so that God's glory would be displayed. Now, friends, I want you to understand that there is indeed great distance. (laughs) There is great distance between us and this modern new covenant that we enjoy through Christ and them in that particular time. But there is a shared point of relevance insofar as all of God's people are to be consumed with the display of His glory. The building of the temple for them parallels for us Uh, the building and display of God's glory on earth through His church, the body of Jesus Christ. And so, the text also prods us to be consumed with conveying the glory of God. It prods us in three particular ways. I think of it as almost like a rock in the chute. You ever had one of those before? You feel it there, and it's not just so obnoxious that you have to get it out in the moment, but you're like, ah, I I need to do something about it eventually. What he's going to do here is just keep adding a a rock to the shoe, if you will. That's why I'm calling it a prod. Uh, The first prod that he'll give them is we could label the curse enacted. He wants them to understand that they are under a curse if they are not committed to conveying God's glory. We'll see that in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. 
Uh, The second uh, prod that he'll give them is the assistance promised. You'll see this in chapter 1, verse 12, to chapter 2, verse 9. He's saying, like, all right, when you do uh, finally commit yourself to conveying God's glory in this way, you're going to experience God's special help. And then the third prod that he gives them are the blessings ensured, and that's in chapter 2, verse 10, to the end of the book. But let's look at this first one, the curse enacted. He's, He's trying to prompt us to being consumed with the conveying of God's glory. So what does it look like? Well, let's look at the text. Verse 1, In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So Haggai is speaking to two guys in particular. One of them is kind of the political leader. His name is Zerubbabel. The other is the religious leader. His name is Joshua. But these guys represent the entire people. So he's not just speaking to two. He's speaking through them to the entire nation that's gathered there. And this is what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the one who is control of all powers that be, whether they're angelic or political. These people say... The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And notice that that address, these people. Normally, God calls his people my people. Here he says, these people. It it is an expression of contempt or frustration. These people say that the time has not come to rebuild the house of the Lord. It's not time yet. Well, then he gets another word from the Lord. It came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Look at verse 4. Here's the question, and notice this a question, it's a prod. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore consider, now therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. It's kind of an interesting proposition that we have here. Insofar as it seems like upon first reading that God may have a problem with them living in houses without God living in a house. But that's not the problem at all. He doesn't mind them living in homes. He expects them to have a roof over their head. Uh, The problem isn't living It could seem when you first read this, and this will make us all feel a little uncomfortable, but I want you to wrestle through it. It could seem that the problem is luxury. I mean, notice how he actually says in verse 4, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Uh, Paneling then is almost like it is now. Interestingly, (laughs) uh, Chip and Joanna made something very famous for many of us, and that is wainscoting, Uh, something that was ultimately popular back in the early 1900s, now all of a sudden became popular again. People wanted to put wood up on the side of the house because it looks nice, and we still do that. So is is this passage uh, forbidding any uh, railing or molding in our house? Is it forbidding any wainscoting of any kind that we we can't have any type of luxury whatsoever? Uh, Let's be careful. He's not concerned necessarily with their living. He's not concerned with the luxury. He's concerned with luxury living at the expense of allegiance to the Lord. 
He says, how is it that you can make yourself so comfortable when you're not conveying the glory of God at all in the building of a temple? It's not a matter of the luxury. It's a matter of allegiance. I mean, you've got to get the picture. If you've ever seen the show, there's this before and after of the home improvement thing. This is what it looked like before. This is what it looked like after. It, the, the idea is the stark contrast should show you, like, hey, look, this is the amazing things that we were able to do. It, what we have here is a contrast, but it's not of the same place. What we have here on the one side of the TV screen, if you will, is their houses, which are looking pretty nice. They've been there 18 years now. They've had a lot of times to do some modifications to make things look pretty great. And then on the other side of the TV screen, if you will, we have the dilapidated house of God. The, the place in the Old Testament, he said, is to represent me. I love uh, coffee table books, and I came across one a few years ago, and it was Ruins of the Castles of Scotland. You ever seen those? Why Scotland has so many stinking castles, I have no clue. It shows how little I know of European history. But they're just there, and they're hauntingly beautiful, but they are indeed dilapidated. These places that, that you know at one point were supposed to represent some form of majesty, some type of regality, and now they're just collapsed. And I contrast that with uh, some of the house magazines that I see here in Naples of these beautiful places that are being put in Port Royal and this clean, minimalistic design and some of the finest woods. And you just see the two different coffee table books. And it's almost as if the one with the ruins has been labeled what we think of God. And then the one with all the beautiful imagery and all the modern decor is what we think of ourselves. And when you look at those two books together, you see that we have a problem. The issue isn't just about the way the house looks. The issue is about where the heart is oriented. And Haggai says, like, is it right? Does this make sense? And here's how he's going to follow it up, because the answer is obvious. Consider what it's been like for you to be so focused on your own houses. What's your experience been like? Don't miss this. Look at, again, verses 5 to 7. He says, basically, your best attempts to make your life great have been frustrated. It's not that they don't have anything, but what God has done is he's enacted a curse upon them that even though they sow, they harvest little. Even though they eat, they never have enough. Even though they drink, they never have their fill. Even though they clothe themselves, no one is warm. And look, this one's great, especially for our modern day. He who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Uh, friends, that is a, a biblical way of talking about inflation. Is that familiar to anyone? I saw a survey the other day that said 80% of people agree that prices today are more than they were a year ago, but only 20% of people have reported that their wages have been commensurate with the increase in prices. That is good old-fashioned inflation. And you know what the text is saying? That in this Old Testament economy, God is cursing them in such a way that they will live, but they will subsist. They will not thrive 
They will barely survive. Despite their best attempts to make their houses great, despite their own attempts to build their own kingdoms, they cannot be satisfied. They are under the divine curse. They are absent. They are absent of any of the promised pleasures of God. They cannot secure these things for themselves. And through that, they are supposed to like wake up to the fact that our plan of building our own kingdom is not working. Therefore, let us be consumed with something else. Does this sound familiar? Do you remember Jesus teaching on the same subject in Matthew chapter 6? He's talking about money. He's talking about finances. He's talking about investments. And, and he sums it all up. By saying, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. we got to get it in the right order. The stuff that we need comes from God. Therefore, we cannot neglect God in getting the stuff that we need. He is first. Look at verse 7. He, he says it again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills Bring wood, build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. They are to be consumed with his glory. Verses 9 through 11 point out more of that same curse. And friends, I want to be clear about something theologically. Sorry, I don't want to like just nerd out here, but there is a difference between the way that God operates with his people in the old covenant and the way that he operates with his people in the new. Based on the promises of the Old Covenant, look in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God would curse his people in this life by withholding from them material prosperity. Now, I want to be really clear, because this is where this thing gets deadly dangerous, and I could start sounding like a TV preacher. You are not insured to get rich quick for putting God first. In the Old Covenant, God displayed his glory in material, tactile ways. It was a very elementary way of them being able to see, hey, when I obey, I am blessed. When I disobey, I'm not. But in the New Covenant, God works more generally with his people. You remember in the book of Romans, for example, uh, no, excuse me, this is Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, where he actually says, hey, God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He makes it clear that there isn't now uh, the, the blessings, material blessings for those who obey, and then there's material cursings for those who disobey. Uh, you will not be able to sense that in this life. So translated, what does this curse mean for those of us who live in the 21st century West and not in the 6th century ancient Near East? Friends, this was actually revealing that they were outside of the covenant promises of God. You would read this at first glance and you would think, oh man, that stinks, they just don't make as much money. This was a signal that they were actually outside of the gracious benefit of God. Essentially, we could say it this way, he is communicating that if he is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. And Jesus made the same statement. Sometimes we think that this is just, well, I give a little bit to God, and I give a little bit to work, and I give a little bit to family, and I give a, a lot of bit to me. 
It doesn't work that way. He's either Lord of all or Lord or not Lord at all. I, I love um, talking to one of our elders about this. He uses this analogy. I give him the credit for it. Uh, he says it's the difference between Jesus being a spoke on the wheel or the hub of the wheel. That's what Haggai is challenging here. The, the fact that they weren't rebuilding the temple was indicative of the fact that Yahweh was not the hub. He was not the center. This is what he wanted more than anything, for his glory to be conveyed. And so, friends, I am warning you now. I have nothing to say about home improvements or renovations. I just did a couple yesterday myself. But what I am calling on you to examine is the overall orientation of your heart. Is it your desire to see the kingdom of God built up and expanded more than your own kingdom? Is Christ truly Lord of all, or is he just somewhere else on the list? This is significant. And so there's a prod. Consider the enactment of the curse. There's another prod here toward being consumed for the conveying of God's glory, and that is the assistance promised. In verses 12 through 15, something interesting happens. They immediately, well, not immediately, they obey. They eventually obey. You're going to notice if you look down in verse 15, it says, on the 24th day of the month and the sixth month and the second year of Darius the king. Now, when did the, this first uh, sermon take place? It took place on the first day of the month. Well, when is this? This is the 24th day of the month. So, they have 23 days go by, and they eventually get it. I have no idea why it takes them 23 days to obey. I have some ideas, though. I, I mean, like, I do have some ideas. I, like, I would actually say that um, knowing where things are in their calendar year, agriculturally, they had to finish getting in the harvest uh, before they were actually able to build the temple of the Lord. Now, this is a great lesson for us all. He is not calling on you to quit your jobs and just go fully investing in building up the kingdom of God and preaching the gospel. He is assuming in this that we are still maintaining basic care of ourselves. That's good to know. But as soon as possible, they were to get to work, and they did. So as soon as the harvest is in, they get to work, and it says that they experience the assistance of God. Now, here it's only uh, enacted. It's not explained. I want you to, to notice it. It says in verse 12 that Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. They respond to this. They respond to this, and they begin to build, and God is empowering them. And notice these lines. It says that Haggai says to the people, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the people, all the remnant of the people. This reminds me of what I was telling you about last week. Remember, God enables obedience. Here he's saying, God stirred up their spirit. God enabled them to get to the work. He is with them. He is helping them. And this is going to be really important because what they have to do is huge. When you think of a construction project, you normally think of hiring somebody to do it. These, <laughs> these are ancient Near Eastern farmers. 
They're not going to go hire a local construction crew. They've got to do this on their own. So they still have to keep themselves alive and rebuild one of the ancient wonders of the world. It's a hard job. And so God says to them over and over, don't worry. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to help you. In fact, discouragement begins to set in. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. It's almost a month later. It says, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. So they've been going at this thing for about three weeks now, and it's starting to get tough. And I want you to see their discouragement. This is what uh, Haggai says to them. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people. And notice his prodding questions. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, Paul's here. The questions, the questions are so important because, like, here he's saying, hey, guys, I want you to evaluate your work. How does it seem like it's going? And they're thinking, horrifically. He even asked, like, how many of you remember what the old house is like? The old house of God that was overlaid with gold, that was filled with treasures of all the nations. He says, you remember how beautiful that was? And they're like, yeah, we do. And he says, how does this one compare to that one? And they say, it is as nothing. In fact, in the book of Ezra, which parallels this, uh, there's an explanation that the people were actually, some of them were weeping because of the work that they were doing on the second temple was so subpar to what had been done before. They're disappointed. They're frustrated. They're getting into the job, and at first they're all excited, and they're thinking, this is going to be fantastic. And then they're beginning to see how this thing's shaping up, and anybody, again, who's done their own home reno project understands, like, oh, I had great ideals. That pictures board looked amazing. But now as I start monkeying around with it, I don't like the trajectory of this. And so also, they're thinking, this is not befitting of the Lord. God is not going to be pleased with this project. What what are we going to do? And this is beautiful because he says, I know you're disappointed, but you need to keep something in mind. I am with you, and I will enable you no matter how dismal your paltry efforts may seem. I am there to help you, to bring this thing to the end. In the same way I was with Moses, I was with you, he says in verse 5. And notice the promise in verse 6. He's not only with them presently, but he's going to turn their work, the work of their hands, into something that they can never imagine. Verse 6 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, again, that's the Lord who has access to all divine resources, political and spiritual. Yet once more, In a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. 
And to this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Do you see the significance of this, friends, where he's telling them, your investment is worth it. I will complete what you have started. And for those of us in the room who are already endeavoring to convey the glory of God to this world, it does at times seem as if we're not doing that much. You can look around and see the investment that you're trying to make in your own family and in your own friends and think, what in the world do I have to show for all the effort that I've put in? I've been busting my rear for Jesus, trying to do something great, and I hear these stories of things that happen in the Old Testament and the New Testament and in church history, and I just seem like a total failure. There is no way that what I'm doing is actually making a difference. And what the text is reminding you is that God says that his people who are invested in his work will ultimately experience his success. He will bring it to full and final fruition. Particularly here, the temple would be rebuilt, by the way, four years later. And initially, it would seem as if some of those initial promises of all the treasures of the nations flowing in would indeed happen. Uh, There would be Herod the Great who would come along around the time of Christ, and he would beautify the temple in some ways. And you would read through Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and see positive reflections upon the temple. But nobody ever said that the temple project was as great as what was promised here. Nobody said, oh man, this was way better than what Solomon did. But we have a hint that something even better would ultimately show up and convey God's glory. Just through the faithful efforts of his people as they demonstrated obedience, God would continue to work and eventually he would send his own son to indwell that temple and say, you know what, I am the perfect representation of the glory of God and I will include other people in this perfect representation of the glory of God. That's why we read 1 Peter chapter 2 today. It says that all of those who are in Christ are joined to him and they are part of this temple. They're stone in it, and they represent and convey his glory, whether they can see it and perceive it or not. Like, great things are happening. Even Jesus warned of this in the parable of the mustard seed. You know that smallest of all seeds? He used two parables with mustard seeds. One of them was faith as the grain of a mustard seed, but there's another where he talks about a mustard seed being sown, and then all of a sudden these huge trees would spring up. He said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It has small beginnings. Friends, you sow these small seeds. They seem so invisible. They do not give immediate returns, and yet God promises that he will return on his investment through you. I love the promise of Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Hang in there. You should engage in this work. You should endure. But I would say, friends, expect God to do great things. His assistance is promised. And then there's a third prod for us to be consumed with conveying God's glory. And that is the blessings that are ensured. This is in chapter 2, verse 10, all the way to the end. And what you're going to notice here, friends, is something that is... um, (laughs) 
it can be kind of, kind of difficult for us who aren't that familiar with Old Testament law. Basically, what's going to happen here is Haggai is going to ask a question to the priests, and he's going to do a little thought experiment with them, and he's going to say, uh, basically, if I have a piece of holy meat, something that's been sanctified to the Lord, and, I, and we put it in a priest's pocket, and that pocket touches something else, does the holiness of that meat affect the pocket, and the holiness of the pocket affect the stuff. <laughs> I know that sounds funny to you, but ritual purity laws were a big deal in the Old Testament. The obvious answer to that was no. A holiness just couldn't be positively conveyed through touch. So then he gives a second thought experiment. He says, what happens if somebody touches a dead body, and then they touch something clean? Uh, will all of a sudden the clean thing make them Clean, or will the dirtiness or contamination of the dead body make the holy thing dirty? And the obvious answer to that, to those who know the book of Leviticus, is no, it, it makes it dirty. So let me modernize this for American terms. Um, okay, so a dirty hand uh, doesn't make something else clean. You put a dirty hand on a clean refrigerator, the clean refrigerator doesn't make the dirty hand clean. Contamination just spreads. You know the old saying, I don't think it's true, like scientifically, but we know the maxim, uh, a spoiled apple, I mean, a, a rotten apple spoils the bunch. Um, you know, like, again, just based on the conventional wisdom of the day, I know there's deeper science behind it, that there is no reality to the fact that all these nice, pure, clean apples are going to make that one clean. Basically, that's just the way gravity works. <laughs> The gravity of sin pulls down. Uh, contamination is thorough. And so he, he does this little thought experiment and then says, hey, you know what? Contamination is pervasive. Like, it is all over the place. And you guys, before you started this temple project, before you re-engaged in this work of putting God first, you were thoroughly contaminated before God. You were dirty before Him. You were unacceptable. But once you began things changed. Look at this in uh, chapter 2, verse 17. He explains the effects of their dirtiness before God. He says, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. But then things change in verse 18. Consider from this day onward, the day that we rebegan the building project, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. You know what he's reminding them of? You have known my curse. You have known my abandonment. You have been defiled before me. But now, now that you've put me first, you can expect blessing. You can expect me to take that seed that you've already sown for this year and make it do something great. You will not only enjoy God's blessing through agriculture, but there is also political blessing in store as well. Look at verses 20 to 23. Since the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the same day, speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down and everyone by the sword. 
of his brother. Now keep this in mind. They're still under domination. They are not an independent state. They have no land. Basically, they have now been taken under the ownership of Persia. It was Babylon. Babylon crumbled to pieces. Persia took over. And the Persian king says, hey, you guys can go back and build your temple. I think that'd be nice. But all you get is Jerusalem. You don't get your land back. You just get Jerusalem. You get to rebuild your temple. And so they're still under foreign domination. And the text here is assuring them that God will throw off all foreign domination. And verse 23 says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the Lord of power, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, this, this governor, my servant, a messianic term, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now this is a little difficult for some of us because we're not that familiar with signet rings. We think of wedding rings, but signet rings were basically the symbol of kingly authority and identity. What God is saying to Zerubbabel, who is a descendant of David, he says, you can be assured of something. I will hold on to you. I will treasure you. You will be my very identity to the nations. And we find in Matthew chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, that God indeed would work through the line of Zerubbabel to bring about the legal authority that would be transferred to Jesus Christ himself. What is he saying here? I am not done with my messianic promises. For those who have put me first, my ruler is coming, and I will dominate once more. You can be assured that in the end, blessing will come. Not just the blessing of prosperity, but also the blessing of politics. In the end, God will rule, things will be well, Jesus will reign. Who does that come to? The ones who are consumed with conveying God's glory. Not the defiled, but the devoted. And so in three different sections through the book of Haggai, we are called to convey the glory of God. Friends, I've, I've never personally heard anyone uh, preach from the book of Haggai. Uh, but I can imagine, I, I could just, I could see it, because I've seen somebody do this with the book of Nehemiah before. I could imagine a preacher using the book of Haggai like as a sermon series for a building project. You know, I, it's not lost on me. People ask me all the time. They're like, do you recognize that the building's full? I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> do you know that we probably need to do something else? I'm like, I'm aware. Um, if you want to know, uh, we own this property over here. Um, and the Lord provides. We're going to have to build a building over there. There you go. There's the building program plan. <laughs> Give. Um, I... I'm being intentionally kind of laissez-faire because, I mean, I, I, look, we finished this building finally. The renovations, it's beautiful. I love it. I'm not that concerned about buildings. We shouldn't be. This, this is not about brick and mortar and stone and carpet and sheetrock. God is concerned about something way more fundamental than that. He is concerned about his people being consumed with the display of his glory. He's concerned about the building of the church as a place with walls and a roof and floor 
the building of the church, the people of God. See, here's what I know. That if we are truly consumed with God's glory being displayed through the building up of his people and the conversion of the lost, whatever it is we need with building stuff over there or wherever will take care of itself. God's building plan is for his people to be consumed with Christ and his body. So Justin, what does that that look like? What does it really look like for someone today to be consumed with conveying the glory of God? It was obvious then, right? It's like grab a trowel, grab a shovel, you know, get on the job site. But what does it look like for us? Well, friends, we know that Christ is indeed the perfect display of God's glory, but he has included us into himself, and that is why in the New Testament these metaphors are used constantly where we are told to edify the word for edifice, by the way, to build up one another. Did you know that when you try to do spiritual good to another brother or sister in Christ in this church, you are building up the church of God. You are conveying His glory in a special way. Some of you do that through formal ways and ministries, through your gifts of service, and through your gifts of time and energy. Some of you do this in supportive roles through your giving, and through your prayers. Some of you do this through speaking roles, whether it be teaching uh, in formal context, or discipling with one another, or evangelism within your family, or outside of your family. But these are the expressions of being consumed with the conveying of God's glory. This is all of our jobs. This is what allegiance looks like. And so, like, the question that's asked of us is, okay, are we more consumed with the building of God's house or our own? If I think of the book of Haggai as to a practical point, there's one word that keeps coming up over and over and over again, and this is the word that I'll leave us with, and we can put it into practice. Four different times Haggai will say, Consider your ways. Consider your ways. You see it first at chapter 1, verse 5. He says, consider your ways. When he's talking about them building their own houses versus the Lord. He says it again in verse 7. Consider your ways. He says it again in chapter 2, verse 15. where He says, now therefore consider from this day onward. Consider what it's like now. Consider where you're headed. Uh, he says it again in verse 18, consider from this day onward, consider what it's like now, consider your trajectory, consider where you're headed. You know, the, the practical point in all of this is just to, to think, to consider. Are we consumed with the conveying of God's glory? I, I want to give you just four simple questions to, to help you consider this. First is what? What? What, friends, consumes you. What is your ultimate? You know, the easiest way to, to figure this out is just to ask the question, why? Why do you do what you do? Ask it about seven or eight times. Just keep asking why, and you're going to get to the ultimate. 
See, the dangerous thing, friends, is that all of us are going to look very similar. Our lives are busy with certain things. But yes, we have family. Yes, we have work. Yes, we have community. Yes, we have relationships. Yes, we have houses. But why do you have a house? Why do you have a job? Uh, what are you trying to do with your family? What's the end game? It's the old analogy. Uh, do you uh, eat to live or live to eat? All of us are living and eating. Some people live so that they can eat in the end. It's just they're all about the eating. Some people eat because they're all about the living. There's an ultimate. Why do you do what you do? Is it, is it for the glory of God Almighty and Christ and His church? Or is it for something else? I, I think through the alternatives, some people's what, the, the, their, their reason for existence could be their ultimate could be their, their body image, their, their financial prosperity, their sexual enjoyment, their relational fulfillment, their academic achievement, their recreational pursuits, their uh, professional accolades, their domestic perfection. Those could be ultimates. And I would think that all those things would play a role in someone who wants to have the ultimate as the glory of God and Christ and His church. But friends, it's a subtle thing to know which one in the end consumes you, drives you. So consider your ways what? Consider your ways when? When? You know what the interesting problem with the people of Judah at this particular time is that they say in chapter 1 verse 2 that these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Did you notice that? They're not so dumb as to say, we're not going to rebuild the house of the Lord. That would just give it away. All they say is, not yet. I've got a building project going on. I'm trying to wainscot my house. I've got stuff to do. And it is to that very person to the person that says, yeah, I know what I need to do. Yeah, I know that God should be first, but I'm not going to do it right now. That is the person who abides under the curse of God. Good intentions don't count, period. I warn you, friends, today is the day to follow Jesus Christ. You know the old saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Last week, I mentioned to you Augustine, and I told you about his prayer that he would do whatever it is that God wanted him to do as long as God would enable it. But there is another prayer that he communicates earlier that I think is deadly dangerous. He says to the Lord, because remember, his struggle was sexual sin in particular, and he says at one point, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet but not yet. He later would confess, I was afraid that you would do it too soon. Uh, uh, friends, I, I don't know what to tell you other than like the, the orientation of your heart right now is indicative of your eternal destiny. Not where you think it will be months from now. No, notice please? I didn't say your destination. I said the orientation. You may not be nailing it 
You may not be making uh, the, the, the efforts, I mean, the, the fruit, seeing the fruit that you want to see and having the success that you want to enjoy. Not direction, excuse me, not implementation. We're talking direction. Where, where is your heart pointed? Is it to the glory of God and Christ and His church, or is it to something else? And is it pointed there now, or do you think it will be pointed there one day? Consider what? Consider who? Friends, there's only two types of individuals. There's the one that is consumed with God's glory, and there are the ones who aren't. He said, Justin, I I know that I'm in Christ, and I've just been a little distracted now. Okay, maybe you have been a little distracted, but that is not who you are. You know who you are? According to the Bible, who you are has already been revealed for us in 1 Peter, and I want to read it for you again just as a beautiful reminder of, uh, of the two types of people that are out there. He says in 1 Peter 2, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying? This is who you are. You're people who are consumed with displaying the glory of God. This is you. But notice this. He says there's another type of person. He says it stands in Scripture that there are some who have rejected the cornerstone and they stumble over him and they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So that's the other group. One group's consumed with God's glory. The other group is just stumbling over Christ and they don't care about him. And then he gets back to us, who we are. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is who you are. The the who question matters. Yes, you can get distracted from time to time. Sometimes the, the events of life would make us think that we're consumed with something else. But I'm not asking what the biggest thought on your mind was yesterday. I'm asking what is the biggest thought on your mind in the overall picture of your life? There's only two types of people, the people who are ultimately oriented to the king and his kingdom, or the people who are ultimately oriented to the kingdom of self. Consider what, consider when, consider who, and then lastly, consider how. How do we remedy this if we're not there? If we've been devoted to another kingdom, friends, just cast yourself upon Christ who has cleansed you, who enables you, who rescues you. Uh, Jesus paid it all. He did it. He satisfied God's demands through his perfect life, through his atoning death, uh, through his sufficient resurrection, through his enabling spirit. Jesus has done it all. He's the one that's included you in his temple. Now it's just yours to live it out. And so if you are not yet in Christ, if you are not yet devoted to his purposes, what do you do? You cast yourself upon him. You trust him. You depend upon him. And friends, there is no easy road to this. It's all or nothing. There's this um, cool story told by 
uh, George McDonald. McDonald is an interesting guy. He was actually kind of a predecessor to C.S. Lewis. And just as C.S. Lewis was a little mixed up theologically, so was McDonald. So I'm just going to give this heads up. But what Lewis did to Christian imagination, so did McDonald. In fact, Lewis says everything he learned, he learned from McDonald. So McDonald tells these fantastical tales that can illustrate some great spiritual truths. And one of those is found in this book, uh, The Golden Key. And essentially, this boy and girl find this key that takes them to a new land, and, and they're looking for this special life, eternal. And at one point, the, the little girl comes up to the old man of the earth who stooped over the floor of this cave, and he raises this, this huge stone uh, from the, the floor, and he left it leaning. And, and, and it discloses this huge hole that went plumb down. And she's looking for the way of life. And this is what he says. This is the way. But there are no stairs. You must throw yourself in. Friends, this is the way. There's no gradually getting into Christ. It is to throw yourself in. It is to cast yourself entirely upon his mercy. And he will not only remove the penalty, but he will enable the power to build a life that is dedicated to the glory of God and Christ and the building up of his church. And so we do well to end where we began. Haggai chapter 1, verse 8. My admonition to you. Translate as needed. Dear brothers and sisters, go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that God may take pleasure in it and that he may be glorified, says the Lord. We can only do this with his help. So let's ask for it. We're going to ask Mark, if you will, come to the piano. And we're going to sing a closing prayer that recognizes our need for God's enablement, for his glory to be displayed. Oh, great God. You can remain seated as we sing. I'll remain up here as well. Let's sing together.